Kia ora koutou. I'm Brent Giblin, and you're listening to Faux Heritage Stories, a series of talks presented by historian Lisa Trutman with support from Faux Local Board and Auckland Libraries. Prepare yourself for tales of horse races, lost guns, World War I adventures, and more in this exciting series. Today, we find out about the streets of Blockhouse Bay. How were they named? Who were the people they were named after? What happened to roads that have since vanished? Some of the answers to these questions can be found by examining a plan for the two townships of Faux North and Faux South in 1859. So grab your magnifying glass and let's begin. This talk was, as as you have seen from the adverts and everything else like that, is to do with some of Blockhouse Bay's older streets, the ones that still hold their names from the 19th century and what those names mean. If you look back far enough, you'll come across a rather intriguing plan which dates from 1859 for the two townships of Wow North and Wow South, the latter today's main part of Blockhouse Bay. The plan went as far as to apply names to almost every street and road, included in a pattern of subdivision linked by land at four routes. A road from the west, one from the east, at Onihanga, the future Monaco Road, Blockhouse Bay Road and a canal tramway. Many of these intended streets have survived, either intact or slightly rearranged by time. And the possible realisation by those drawing up the plans that Blockhouse Bay is not as smooth as they thought Blockhouse Bay actually looked like. Others have vanished completely. Most have also had new names since then. The general rules you see to street name changes by Auckland City Council in the 1930s were if one street with one name had more residents than another in the city with the same name, the one with more residents got to keep its name, usually. I can think of one exception, that's Avondale's Victoria um, Road, which had more residents down there at the time than the Victoria Street in the city, that's residents, not actual businesses or anything, people living there. But because Victoria Street in the city is far more historic than Victoria Road in Avondale, they changed that name to Victor Street. Completely different sex. Street name choices came from trees, place names, British, or now and then Māori words, which was interesting. In the 1930s, they had a list of Māori words. At one point, they wanted to rename Great North Road to a three-letter Māori word. I can't remember exactly what it is, Awa Road or something like that. It didn't didn't gel. Um, Usual rule of thumb, though, was to try not to completely change the name, apply a new one that still had the same first letters, if possible. As far as Wow South goes, two streets named Porter and Dignan are now Kinross Street, Dignan was renamed to Porter, then became Kinross since 1932. Williamson is now Armagh in 1932. Derham and O'Brien Streets completely gone. Powditch Street was swallowed up as Gill Crescent. Wynyard has been part of Blockhouse Bay Road since 1932. Bain Street became Wow Portage Road, now just Portage Road, but with a different straightened alignment. Bartley Street became Barton in 1938 and has since been cut in two. Whether that was renamed after the local Barton family is very unclear. Barton is an English place name in Cambridgeshire, so while the family name itself is a toponym which originates from a place. 
that Canal Tramway's second southern portion, Esplanade Street, was briefly, now this I found incredible, Esparto, E-S-P-A-R-T-O, that was on the official public notice from Auckland City Council for we're going to change the name, in 1938. And then somebody obviously had a bit more of a rush of blood to the brain and went with Endeavour by the 1940s. Fairly well, the only street names in the main part of Blockhouse Bay that have local relevance are Joan Stumbles Avenue, Guild Crescent and possibly Barton Street. Others are just names applied by outsiders without any relevance to the Bay's history. Ye yes, you can, but I think it's best if you could wait to the end. Yes, please. All right, but what was behind all those names slapped across the plan of the landscape from the Monaco Harbour to the Well Creek back in 1859? Where'd they come from? A heap of names of prominent Auckland citizens of the time popped into a hat and drawn out at random? No. Every one of those names aside from the Esplanade, are those of the men who made up the very first Auckland Provincial Council in 1853 to 1854. They ran out of names, which is probably why Joan Stumbles Ave was totally unnamed until uh, just after her death in 1988. But all the other highways and byways are named after those 24 Provincial Council members. I came upon the answer by plugging in a number of those surnames from the 1859 plan into a papers pass search and found an article written by Dr G.H. Schofield which provided the answer. The names matched the first council and only that council. There are a couple of possible reasons why this happened. Uh, the Well North and Well South townships were a provincial council settlement scheme which failed dismally but it was still one of their schemes to try to convert government wasteland into a new port area on the harbour. It probably seemed a bit less pretentious to name the streets after the first provincial council members rather than the ones sitting in 1859. The other reason was the Well Canal idea, the reason why Esplanade Road, now Endeavour Street, was so, is so wide. Captain Byron Drury of the HMS Pandora wrote of a possible Waikato to Monaco Canal in his report on the Monaco Harbour in 1854. In 1857, Robert Gill writing to the editor of the New Zealander, wrote of the benefits of a canal across the isthmus. Any engineering skill or necessary machinery required, he said, you might readily get in these colonies or from England, and so far as I know the ground, there is no insuperable difficulty either at the Tamaki or the wow. Yes, he's another bloke who actually never came out to visit here and see and know about the Green Bay to Blockhouse Bay Ridge. Gilfillan was writing after news had broken that the government, in conjunction with New South Wales, was about to start a direct steam route to Panama, linking with the newly constructed Panama Railroad, 1855 for direct mail and passenger conveyance across the, that isthmus to the Atlantic. This, of course, before the Panama Canal, which eventually happened in 1914. Ironically, Robert Gilfillan's own brother, John, wound up being one of the names on that first Blockhouse Bay Street plan. 
The original survey for that township, today's Western Blockhouse Bay, took place around 1857 and sections in the South and North Wales townships were offered for sale by the Auckland Provincial Council on the 5th of August 1859. Distinctly marked on the accompanying survey plan is a tramway extending from Blockhouse Bay along the present day Endeavour Street Reserve then sweeping northward between Avondale Stream and Portage Road ending at the Wow River in the vicinity of the corner of Delta Ave and Stock Street in New Lynn northwest of the Wow Bridge at Great North Road. It is likely at that point the government knew very well that trying to cut a real canal through the ridge from Green Bay to Blockhouse Bay was economic and engineering insanity. So the tramway would probably have been more, more a simple rail link from what is today's Olympic Park to the Monaco Harbour. Still a big ask actually but contemporary references do seem to give the impression that everyone then thought it was going to be a full-on canal linkage. This resulted in the brief boom in offers of real estate along mainly the western side of the Wow River itself, but including Avondale and part of Blockhouse Bay during the late 1850s and early 1860s. All of the subdivisions had either promises of proximity to the proposed canal as a selling point buy this land and you'll see ships passing you by. Or we're right beside it with jetties and landing reserves to take full advantage of the expected maritime traffic steaming right past. Just after the original survey of the townships and the laying out of the indicative tramway, Henry Pounding Stark put his township of East Wow, Monaco Harbour, on the market. The northeast section of today's Blockhouse Bay Village Allotment 76, Parish of Titterangi in 1878. That bit right over the road on the other side of Donovan. The township of East Well is situated on a level piece of land in a large deep bay in the Monaco Harbour adjoining the reserved government township of the same name. It stands on the narrowest part of this island on the spot recognised by every successive government of the colony and also by that very talented engineer, His Excellency Sir W. Denison, Governor-General of New South Wales, on his recent visit to this province, as the most suitable for connecting the traffic of the eastern with that of the western coast of New Zealand. The tramway, which the government have surveyed from shore to shore for the purpose of connecting Wild Township with the Waitemata, is only one and a half miles long, and now that intercolonial and interprovincial steam communication is established and the first steamer is now lying in the Monaco, four others being shortly expected, the construction of this tramway or some equally good connecting link between the two coasts cannot be longer deferred. And the commerce which always springs up at a steam packet station will necessitate, necessitate its being speedily made a port of entry. But for all that, the canal-slash-tramway didn't happen, as we know, neither did the settlement at the time. Hardly any land changed hands in the Wow North and Wow South townships. The government took over land from around 579 to 585 Blockhouse Bay Road to build a blockhouse in 1860, took over additional land on Gilfillan Street, just in case the settlement took off like Topsy and there were <gasps> houses too close to them. There weren't, and that was basically that. 
Not really all that surprising then that only seven of those first provincial councillors still have a name on the landscape here, with many today not knowing just who they were. So we, we have Donovan Street, named after Patrick Donovan, the publican. So we're starting with a man about whom there really isn't that much to relate, I'm sorry. Patrick Donovan was born somewhere in Ireland around the year 1813. He landed at the Bay of Islands in 1838, according to his obituaries. By mid-1841, he was in Auckland, an active member of the local Catholic parish committee, organising the construction of a place of worship on the ground gifted to them by the Crown, the site of the future St. Patrick's Cathedral. As well, he was hotel keeper at the Shamrock Rose and Thistle on Shortland Street, leaving this in February 1843. He purchased a number of farms from the Crown during the sales in the 1840s, most prominent being his Green Meadows Farm, just north of Royal Oak. From there, he accepted the nomination to run for a seat on the Auckland Provincial Council in 1853. He was a warden of the 100 of Auckland in 1854. That was a group of men who got together and they decided about licensing for people to run stock on Crown ground. And from that, they got, they got income to do things like fencing of properties and fencing of roads and everything else, but not actually too much work on the roads because they couldn't afford it. That actually was our first local authority. But generally kept out of the public eye, which is why he's so annoying and so mysterious and I don't have much information on him. He died at only hunger, leaving a grown-up family in 1898. Then there is Taylor Street, named after William Innes Taylor the farmer. We have a bit more about Taylor than we do about Donovan. Taylor was born in Hyderabad, India, 10th of October 1821, to Lieutenant William Taylor and his wife Barbara Nee Innes. Taylor's father would rise in the ranks to retire as a general in the 1850s, and another of his sons was Alan Kerr Taylor of Alberton fame. When he was 13, William Taylor was sent to Scotland in 1834, educated in Edinburgh. After time spent farming from the age of 18, he set sail for New Zealand at the age of 21 in 1843. That year again keeps coming up. And arrived at Auckland on the 14th of November. Over the course of 1843 to 1862, he built up his Glenninus estate, after which the suburb is named today. He became a member of the, Avon, of the Auckland Borough Council in 1851, an experiment in municipal administration that lasted only a year. It actually covered the whole of the isthmus, but as soon as they got together, they didn't know what they were doing, and they dissolved. Uh, in a, he was elected to the Auckland Provincial Council and served there from 1853 to 1855, hence his name being on the plan. He was the first chairman of the Tamaki West Highway Board in 1862. He purchased half of allotment to Parish of Tuturangi in 1861. That's on the Rosebank Peninsula in Avondale for £1,075. He added to this by purchases of parts of the adjoining allotment to Levin in 1863. And all of this he leased to a young Irishman from County Wicklow named John Bollard, who was to have a great impact on the history of both Avondale and Blockhouse Bay. Apart from being the chairman of the Wow Highway District and Avondale Road Board from 1868 to 1895 and the local school committee from 1863 to 1914, Bollard also served for a time at the Blockhouse here 
and organised the formation of Blockhouse Bay Road. He purchased the Rosebank Farm outright from Taylor in 1882. In 1890, William and his tailor caught a bad chill while driving home in the rain and died in March that year from pneumonia, aged 69. Going to the northern part, the Wow North, we have Busby Street, one of the old names, named after James Busby, the British resident. He's on the list and the plan and his name on a street because of his membership of that Auckland Provincial Council. Indeed, he was the first chairman pro tem and was one of the longest serving councillors, finally resigning in January 1863. The bare facts are that he was born in Edinburgh in 1802 and with his family sailed for Port Jackson, New South Wales in 1824. He returned to England in 1831, sailed back to Sydney in 1832 and married Agnes Dow. He arrived in the Bay of Islands in 1833 and served as a British resident until the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. Yes, he's that James Busby, the one who organised a meeting of the Northern Chiefs in 1835 to get agreement on a flag for their ships crossing the Tasman, established one of the first vineyards in the country and his house, now called Treaty House, still plays a prominent role for national remembrance each Waitangi day. But his later years were stormy. He constantly battled and litigated for his own land claims and those of others, and it earned him a rather unfortunate reputation and legacy. To quote his biographer, Claudia Orange, in his early New Zealand years, Busby made few close friends, either European or Māori. In later years, embittered by his misfortunes, he became a tiresome memorialist for the cause of the old land claimants partially bald with a hawk-like expression. She wasn't kidding either, I've seen his latter photos as he was older. Busby stalked his enemies with a tireless zeal that critics alleged was fired by personal ambition. That the justice of his own case was tardily recognised has been largely overlooked. The picture regularly presented in the Auckland press of a querulous and crotchety old nuisance has obscured the significance of his role in establishing an official British position in New Zealand and his share in making the Treaty of Waitangi. In 1871, he visited England for an eye operation and in Surrey there, on 15th of July, he died of congestion of the lungs. Next, we have one of the early controversial administrators of Auckland, Connell Street, named after William Connell, the auctioneer. Like Busby, William Connell had a background in colonial administration. He was, according to family historians, born in County Cork, Ireland, around 1806. There he married Isabella Ridings, and the couple arrived in Wellington on, on December 1840. He was still living in Wellington when he was appointed as the first postmaster general based at Auckland. So he had to move from Wellington, but he he went ahead and did that, and he was appointed in September 1841 by Governor Hobson himself. His rate of pay was £160 per year plus £90 allowance in lieu of a clerk. Actually, pretty good wage, pretty good salary. Despite the grand name, though, of Postmaster General, his only real staff he had was an office me me messenger, eventually, and his own family. When Connell eventually did get a clerk, it was his brother-in-law, Richard Ridings. The first post office in Auckland was described at the time as a wretched affair. 
a small hut as a police office as well as a post office. How is it possible for a postmaster to do his duty in that four-foot square box amidst the confusion from the adjoining room? Hello, they brought in another drunk again. I'm trying to do my stamping here and, yeah, the noise would break out. The building was torn down and rebuilt for the princely sum of £35 around mid-1842. Just after Hobson's death in September 1842, Willoughby Shortland, as colonial secretary and acting governor, appointed Connell as commissioner of audit and registrar of records as well as the postmaster general job. It seemed to be a bit too much for Connell, though. In March 1843, an Auckland merchant had him in court on charges of willfully delaying the transmission of registered letters posted in Sydney. Some relief for Connell's workload came in August 1843 when it was finally confirmed after 18 months of correspondence, some of it rather pointed, between Auckland and London, that the customs and post office departments were to be combined under the new Postmaster General, George Cooper. The Hobson Shortland administration was costing much too much money and, much, and, and, and was losing far more money than it was taking in as income. This appointment, though, lasted only two weeks. George Cooper was forced to resign his posts upon the discovery that he had been embezzling public funds. Connell was temporarily back as Deputy Postmaster General, the Postmaster General being in London, until a replacement arrived from Wellington. By October, though, he had another job, that of clerk to the Colonial Secretary, Shortland. Under Governor Fitzroy, Connell worked as chief clerk for the Colonial Treasurer from February 1844. Once Governor Gray arrived, however, in 1845, I think Connell felt the change in the wind. He entered the private sector and started his own commission agent business from September 1846, entering into partnership with Richard Ridings, who had by now left the Postal Service from mid-1847 as auctioneers and land agents. In 1850, he was on a committee of private investors looking into the possibility of coal deposits near Huntley in the Waikato. That actually ended up being for real. He won a seat in the 1853 Provincial Council for Auckland Suburbs and remained there for at least two years. He died suddenly in 1859 of paralysis of the lungs and heart failure, aged 53. Then we have Gilfillan Street, named after John Anderson Gilfillan, the merchant. The street named after him is shorter now than was attended in 1859. It actually was supposed to stretch on paper clear across this domain here, Gittos Domain, to match, to meet into Lewis Street. They decided by the 1880s, no, we're not going to have that, we'll keep this all as one reserve. John Anderson Gilfillan was born in Fife, Scotland in 1821. He worked in a merchant's office in Liverpool from 1837, but his health broke down in 1845. His doctors said due to a possibility of lung disease, well, Mr. Gilfillan, you've got two options. You could either go to Egypt, which is lovely, hot and dry, or you can try that new place called New Zealand, which we hear is rather healthy. So he chose New Zealand. He arrived in Wellington in December 1847, fleeing Britain on, on the medical advice. By August 1848, he was back in Britain, probably there to pick up some merchandise which he was selling back in Wellington by March 1849. These 
these gentlemen did tend to yo-yo between, despite the fact that it was many, many months' voyage, but they were able to do it. The following month, he was here in Auckland with a Queen Street store selling an assortment of British goods, such as clothing, lead, paints, and alcohol. Got to sell the alcohol. His brother Richard had arrived before he did and may have sung Auckland's praises to him as a business location. John Gilfillan was a church warden for Old St Paul's at the end of Princess Street, and in 1850 he was appointed as a Justice of the Peace. In 1853 he was a member of that first Auckland Provincial Council that would have been immortalised here beside the waters of the Monaco. He remained on the council until 1868. He was appointed to a seat on the Legislative Council in 1854, he ran unsuccessfully at the office of provincial superintendent, which meant he would have been telling the councillors in a way what to do. Not really supposed to do, but they tended to do that. But he lost. He married Catherine Frances Davies in 1859 at his Kyber Pass home, and then he resigned his legislative council seat in 1861. He had that for life, with a guaranteed income, and he resigned it. But then he was recalled, come back, come back to the Legislative Council. So he relented and he went back again, but then finally resigned in 1866. Make up your mind, man. Agent for a number of steamers coming to Auckland and first president of the Auckland Chamber of Commerce. He died in February 1875. The 1902 Cyclopaedia of New Zealand wrote, the weakness of chest with which Mr. Gilfillan had long been, so long been afflicted and which he endured with great fortitude at length took the form of chronic bronchitis, and after many months of suffering, he was taken away on the 1st of February, 1875, in the 54th year of his age. Again, he died relatively young. Now, right on the eastern edge of Wales South, we have Lewis Street. Francis Charles Lewis, whom I term the inspector. Here we have a street named after a man who inspected thistles. Yes. Lewis was born on or near Spike Island in County Cork, Ireland, around 1830. At age of 15, he enlisted with the 65th Regiment. He left Woolwich in May 1846 for Sydney, left Sydney in August that year for Auckland. By the end of 1847, he was a corporal and also a lance sergeant, a corporal acting as a sergeant when there was no sergeant at the time. He was discharged in June 1848, but immediately took up with the 58th Regiment based here. Over the course of 1852 to 53, he and Benjamin Lewis, I still got to, to assess how they were related, whether they were brothers or cousins, I don't know, but they purchased farmland in East Tamaki in the general vicinity of Millhouse Drive and Chapel Road North Park near Howick. While there, either he or Benjamin put an interesting ad into the newspapers. I'm quoting this. Wanted as housekeeper, a respectable old widow who has not the encumbrance of an ever-talking tongue. <laughs> Apply to Mr B Lewis, Emu Cottage, Auckland, or to FC Lewis Howick, September the 25th, 1854. Yes, that quite caught my eye. I have an ever-talking tongue, but I'm not a widow. 
Benjamin Lewis died at Tamaki Grove, Howick in 1863, which could be the name of that farm out there. Francis Lewis held onto the Eastern Farm until 1873, when he then shifted to land in Remuera, just opposite St Mark's Church. He married Elizabeth Cooper in 1860. And if the housekeeper had been for his household, by 1860 he'd pretty well sorted out that need. He tried twice to get a license to run the Royal Hotel in Princess Street in the city in 1851 and 53, but both times was opposed by the keeper of the nearby Masonic Hotel. So he went into politics for a while. His military background and his farm near Howick earned him the right to be nominated to represent the pensioner settlements of Pamua, Otahu, Anihanga and Howick. He won a seat on the first provincial council and therefore got to have his name on the Blockhouse Bay landscape six years later, where it remains. And I've always wondered up until this year what Lewis Street was named after. Now I know. He served briefly with the militia during the Waikato War, but it isn't likely he took part in any actions south of the Bombays. He retained agricultural interests right through to his death at Remiwera in 1898. In 1862, he was appointed as the Auckland Provincial Inspector of Sheep, covering an area of 30 miles radius from central Auckland, and that he retained as an office right through the dissolution of the provinces in 1876 and on into the 1880s employed by the central government. Essentially, he was primarily checking for diseases amongst flocks and to make sure that when people were selling their sheep, they were properly branded. At the same time, he was appointed Inspector of Thistles, now, I'm quoting this, the description is for the purpose of ascertaining the existence of any noxious thistles therein and eradicating or destroying the same. For both jobs, he earned £67, pounds, 5 shillings, 5 pence per annum combined. He held the thistle job to 1869. I wonder why he didn't attack gorse. He just went for thistles. In 1885, as well as his sheep checking responsibilities, he was Chief Sheep Inspector for Napier that year. He was appointed Cattle Inspector under the Disease Cattle Act. So he was an absolute career inspector of things. He retired eventually in 1888, and in his final years until his death in 1898, he was only in moderate good health. It's probably all those sheep and thistles. He left behind a wife and four sons, so presumably there may still be descendants around of Mr. Lewis, the sheep, thistle and cattle inspector extraordinaire. Then finally, yes there is a finally folks, finally, we have Mitchell Street, named after Robert Mitchell, the ironmonger. While we know that Robert Mitchell was a member of the Auckland Provincial Council from 1853 to 1855, and therefore the one after whom Mitchell Street was named, now a longer street than the originally intended, he is a bit of an enigma. But apparently he was great at dancing the jig on board ships in Auckland Harbour. Mitchell was born around 1810 in Scotland. He arrived in Auckland on the 9th of October 1842 aboard the Jane Gifford, having spent the voyage relatively comfortably as one of eight cabin passengers. The vast majority of the rest were in steerage. He'd struck up a brief friendship with Glaswegian Robert Graham of Ellerslie fame and future provincial superintendent fame and Waiwera and Rotorua and all that, that Robert Graham. Mitchell also took to romancing a young lass along the way, but forgot all about her once he'd landed at Commercial Bay especially once he'd taken delivery of the enormous stock of goods he'd brought with him from Britain to sell in the rough and ready colonial capital called Auckland. 
by April 1843, with his absent partner William Gibson back in Dundee, Scotland, financing Mitchell's enterprise, he'd set up the firm of Gibson and Mitchell, running an ironmongery and hardware store in a brick building constructed at the corner of High and Shortland Streets, leased from William Brown and Dr John Logan Campbell. His goods were, to quote him, all selected by one of the partners in the mother country with the most scrupulous care at the different English and Scottish manufactories and have all been ordered expressly for this market. Emphasis on that and some of the native trade manufactured to order at home. By April 1845, he was an ensign in the Auckland Battalion of Militia, of whom Campbell was one of the captains, and some of the militia did see action in Northland, but probably not Mitchell. He was known for his acute interest in activity during the elections for the Auckland Provincial Council in 1853-55, and even for the superintendency, backing William Brown. Those were the days when buying votes, while frowned upon, still happened. And Mitchell was so keen, it is said, on hearing that there might be someone, somewhere, willing to pledge his vote in return for some form of gratuity, that there goes Mitchell on the back of his Valparaiso mare was a common saying in Auckland for a way after another vote, clear through to the time when Mitchell died in the last years of the 19th century. Mitchell was also known for putting economic pressure on some in order to secure votes for William Brown. This statement came from publican Edward George in 1853. I heard George Wagstaff, the blacksmith, more than once and in presence of several witnesses, declare that Mr Robert Mitchell had urged him to vote for Mr Brown because Colonel Winyard did not sell coals and iron, which Mr Mitchell did, and that Mr Mitchell had told him, Wagstaff, that six tonnes of coals were then being landed from a vessel in the harbour, a part of which coals he, Wagstaff, might have and pay for them when convenient. Edward George, 25th of June, 1853, Royal Hotel. Nudge, nudge, say no more. Then, in July 1855, the firm closed up shop. Mitchell packed his bags, boarded the William Denny, and according to Campbell, danced a jig for joy on the deck at the thought of finally leaving Auckland. The following year, via Melbourne, he returned to St Andrews in Scotland to live out the rest of his days with what one obituary report described as his modest colonial earnings. He married Jane Gibson there in 1858, became a JP and by 1870 had become principal of that city's university. He died in 1898, the news reaching Auckland papers via the San Francisco mails. What wasn't known at the time, though, was that Robert Mitchell was, from 1845, a secret financial partner of Brown and Campbell, not just their tenant. William Brown had been a former associate of Mitchell's long-distance partner and financial backer, William Gibson, back when Brown was in Dundee. When William Brown, a senior partner of the Brown and Campbell Partnership, travelled back to Scotland on business in 1845, he arranged a deal with Gibson who also held a financial stake in Brown and Campbell anyway, called a quadruple alliance, as Campbell rather jokingly put it. Now that's an interesting term, well known to those in, in that day and age, because the quadruple alliance was the pact formed in 1815 between Great Britain, Prussia, 
Austria and Russia to bring down Napoleon Bonaparte, which they did at the Battle of Waterloo. The deal with Gibson ensured financial support for Brown and Campbell for the 10 years from 1845 to 1855, as the firms of Gibson and Mitchell and Brown and Campbell both worked together and complemented each other. At the end of the agreed term, the agreement over Robert Mitchell packed up, passed the business to two former employees and went home. The next year, William Brown did likewise. Actually, for a while, so did John Logan Campbell, because John Logan Campbell didn't want to stay in Auckland either. Before Brown and Mitchell left, the three resident partners had estimated the total assets of the alliance to be worth £80,000, therefore giving Mitchell and Gibson 20000 each. Mitchell was happy to leave his share with Brown and Campbell for another 10 years at the rate of 5% interest, canning Scots that he was. Gibson, though, kicked up. He called the asset liquidation unbusinessmanlike, but was eventually mollified with an offer of leaving his £20,000 share with Brown and Campbell for three to five years at 7.5% interest, along with an agreement to make secured advances in the future. So on this foundation, unlike many other flash-in-the-pan early colonial enterprises, Brown and Campbell survived, and that survival formed the bedrock for John Logan Campbell's later successes in the colony's business world. The Quadruple Alliance had funded the original business, and Brown and Campbell both built on that. So by 1855, they were actually worth £55,000 each. They didn't actually disclose that in the splitting up amongst the four, and they possessed vast real estate, including the future Cornwall Park. And as for Mitchell and his Valparaiso mayor, let alone his merry jig on the deck of the William Denny. True, he was merely a footnote to Auckland's history. Like Brown and Campbell, he was only here to make as much money as possible from both settlers and Māori, then leave. But his name, along with the others in this talk, still remains on the maps of the bay to this day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this talk from Faux Heritage Stories. Stay tuned to hear the next episode. If you want to hear other author talks, concerts and in-depth heritage commentaries, head to the Auckland Library's website to subscribe. Matewa. Wā.